Today we're going to see what it means for a person to be brought under God's rule, for a person to be brought into God's people and become one of his. For as we look at this moment in the life of Jacob and and what flows out of it, he moves from a position of referring to God as the Lord your God, to his father Isaac, which he does in chapter 27, to God as the Lord my God, which he does at the end of chapter 28. He moves from knowing about God to being someone who knows and worships and trusts God himself. Now, how did that happen? How did God take this nasty, conniving, no good mummy's boy who's lied and cheated and manipulated his whole life to being someone whose whole life is turned on its head, who will become the man the New Testament commends as a hero of faith despite his many many failings, which we're also going to see a few of today, because we're also going to see how slow some of the changes are and that meeting God, receiving the promises of God, being blessed by God doesn't mean that you're instantly transformed into a glorious saint or mean that things are necessarily going to go easily and well for you always or that the past won't haunt you or that God will protect you from other people's machinations Jacob's going to experience all of that even as this new man in relationship with God. You think home and away has a bunch of messed up relationships. You think Dallas and days of our lives are bad. You ain't seen nothing yet till you see what happens in Jacob's family life. But even then, we're going to see something else, that that through the mess, uh, and it's a royal disaster, God is going to use these awful circumstances and awful people to bring about his good purposes, not just to do something incredible in Jacob's life, but something for the whole world. Uh, God's pretty good, as it turns out, at using rotten raw materials. But it all stems from the great turning point in chapter 28, which we just read, where Jacob is confronted by God and means nothing will be the same again. So so let's pick up the story and just go back over some of it. Uh, Chapter 28 and verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took one of the stones from the place, put it there at his head, and lay down in that place, and he dreamed. A stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. Now, using a rock as a pillow, that doesn't sound particularly comfortable to me. Even camping with James and David, I've never been tempted to do that. When I forgot my pillow, I just stuffed my T-shirt full of the other clothes and used that. But, but if that's uncomfortable, the rock pillow, as he sleeps, he has this even more uncomfortable dream, uh, weird dream of a ladder connecting the realm of heaven to earth. Or in other translations, it's a stairway, a stairway to heaven. Now, if you live through the 70s or you've learned guitar or you just like Wayne's World, you'd be very familiar with Led Zeppelin's greatest hits, Stairway to Heaven, uh, great guitar work. But if you ever listen to the lyrics, it's a very, very weird song. It's about a lady who spends all of her whole life trying to buy a stairway to heaven. She thinks somehow she can earn her way there. But as we're about to see, you don't need to buy it at all. It's God's gift. 
Now, the whole point of a stairway or a ladder is to make connection. It's to allow access. And this one in Jacob's dream reaches right up into heaven itself and and it comes right down to the earth, to the ground, and it's got angels going up and down on it. And all of a sudden, the divine realities, which granddad and dad spoke about, which might have all sounded like very tall tales to Jacob, they, they become a blinding reality. But it's not just news for Jacob. There's something incredible for us there as well, because for the first time since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, there's now the possibility of a connection between heaven and earth. But it's not just about the reality of God and of his heaven and the possibility of access. It it seems to me that what's really happening is God confronting Jacob with his powerful rule. Here is a vision of the kingly authority of God, the majesty of God, the rightful rule of God over Jacob. You have a look at verse 13. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. God's there and it might be, it just says beside him or it, so it could be beside him or it could be beside the latter. But he's announcing who he is. He says, I am Yahweh. That is the personal name of God. Now, it's always written in those, uh, I mean, the modern translations of the Bible was that that word Lord with the the weird small capitals, L-O-R-D. And you can ask me later why that's the case. But but whenever you see that in the Old Testament, um, they're not translating the word, Hebrew word for Lord or Sir. No, they're, they're translating God's personal name, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. And, and like most names in the Bible, it, it, the, the name tells you something about the person or about the place. Uh, Jacob means grasper, usurper, and that's who he's been all his life. Yahweh means I am who I am. And by it, he's declaring that, that he is, in fact, the ground of all being, that, that he alone is the definer. He is the unchanging one. He's the one who is and who, who brings everything else into being. This is the creator of heaven and earth. We met back in chapter 1 and 2 when we met Yahweh, the one who spoke and and everything came into being, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. It all came into being by his powerful word. And, and this is the God of Abraham, the one who Abraham trusted and obeyed, the one who commanded Abraham to leave his home and blessed him, though he certainly didn't deserve it. And this is the God of Isaac, the God who'd answered the prayers of his people and brought Rebekah into Isaac's life against all the odds. And, and these are his angels that are going up and down from the realm of heaven right down throughout the earth. I mean, angels are, are always pictured in the Old Testament as going out from heaven to the ends of the earth to carry out the purposes and the commands and the messages of God. So this picture of heaven being open and Angelic beings ascending and descending is God showing not just connection now to earth and that there can be access, but also his agents 
exercising his powerful rule, carrying his word across the earth and going to do his will. And so you've got to say that right here at this point of his conversion is the moment that Jacob was confronted by the kingship and majesty and authority of God. Certainly that's the way that Jacob responds as someone who's rightly recognised now God's rule. Uh, in verses 16 to 18, he's, he's overcome with fear and awe. Uh, let's see it. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, What an awesome place this is. And by awesome, he means terrifying. <laughs> this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He's in awe. He, he's afraid. He's overwhelmed because he's come face to face with the king. And in the end, he acknowledges now that this Lord is his Lord. Verse 21, Yahweh will be my God. And he goes on and makes an altar out of the very stone that he was using as a pillow the night before and he offers his first sacrifice to God from the very little he has because he's on the run for his life, he's skint. And he names the place Bethel, which, which literally means the house of God. Bethlehem is the house of bread. Bethel is the house of God. This is where I met him. It's a place of surrender. It's a place of submission. And you might say that Jacob might have wanted to sleep the previous night almost a free spirit in his own mind. But as he woke up in the morning, he suddenly knew and recognised that, that in fact God rules and God would rule him. And and it had all taken him completely by surprise. It wasn't something he planned for or hoped for to hope to encounter. He he wasn't looking for God at all. He said, Surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. He had absolutely no idea that God would be there. He may have wanted the benefits and the blessings to come from God, and he'd stolen lied to get them, but he never wanted God. <laughs> The only reason he was here at all because he's running for his life from his brother who's out to kill him and so that's how he came here. He was just thinking about himself. God was the last person in the world he was expecting to meet. Jacob did not seek out God. God sought out Jacob. And in the end, if you are a believer and a follower of God, then know that the only reason that you are one is because he sought you out first before you ever thought to seek him out. Uh, God reigns. God rules. He is the king. It's one of the differences between someone who, who knows about God and someone who knows God, really knows him. Lots of people know about God. They, they might have heard the stories of the Bible in scripture classes or from roundabout. They may even have been raised in families where they said grace at the table. But, but it's not until you're confronted with the truth that he is the king and that you're not, that he rules this universe and you don't, that this world is made for him and not for you, that you will genuinely understand that there's a problem that needs fixing and, and, and that you, you'll look for the answer. And so I want to ask, have you recognised that? 
Has God confronted you with his kingship and authority and your need to come under it that he is the boss and he is the one who's going to call the shots in your life? But for Jacob, this wasn't just a moment of being confronted by God's majesty and authority. It was also the moment that he discovered grace in the promises of God. See, God didn't just show up to confront him as his judge and just condemn him or destroy him and, or, and not give him any hope. No, God comes and speaks great words of promise to him that he, as the king, will deliver upon. Great words of promise. And, and the content of the promises is spelled out for us in verses 12 to 15. And, and it's, a, it's God's unconditional, unmerited offer. It's, it's entirely grace. Jacob has done nothing to deserve any of this. In fact, he's done lots of things to not deserve it, right? The, the unconditional offer of God's presence, of God's provision and God's protection, God's presence. Verse 15, I am with you. I will keep you. I will not leave you. God's provision. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. Or verse 15, I will bring you back to this land, a home and family. God's protection, verse 15, I will keep you wherever you go. Great promises, wonderful promises, promises of hope and life, promises so far removed from getting what he really deserved. And in verses 20 to 22, you can see that Jacob is so overcome by it. He has to reason with himself about how lucky he's been and, and how could this be? He says, wow, suppose it, it really is true that God will not leave me and, and suppose it's true that God will provide me for me and suppose it's true that he's going to protect me. Suppose all that is really true, what he's just said to me. But since that's what's on offer, then the Lord, Yahweh, shall be my God. What would you want for anything else? Here is the moment too good to turn back, that the king in all of his majesty should promise me what I do not deserve. It's so good. It's so kind. And he is utterly gripped. God's grace is irresistible. He doesn't have to earn it. He, he doesn't have to go on a pilgrimage to earn brownie points with God. He doesn't have to say prayers five times a day with the exact right words to get into God's good books. He doesn't have to recite a creed or repeat a rosary. He doesn't have to give alms or follow an eightfold path. Jacob isn't even expecting to meet God. He hasn't got any good works to offer God. He's just got a life of trickery, of deceit and deception. He could never in a million years do enough good to earn his frequent flyer points to heaven. He is completely reliant on a ladder being reached down to earth. It's God reaching down to take hold of Jacob. And from that moment, he is a new man. This shall be my God. And again, I want to ask you if that's true of you. Have you been gripped by God's promises to you? Have you been gripped by God's love and grace? Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
God makes promises to you very much like the promises he made here of God's presence with you, that he will always be with you at your desk, in your classroom, at home, in the garden, at the office, where down the shops. He gives you his word that he will never leave you or forsake you if you're one of his people. God's provision, it's, it's not the same promised land that God was giving to Jacob, but, but he's promising an even better one, heaven itself. You're part of it and he'll look after you and he'll look after you today and tomorrow and, and forever. He will care for you as your heavenly father and give you what you need. God's protection, not necessarily keeping us safe from all the difficulties and trials and evils of this life as we're about to be confronted with in Jacob's own life but that he will protect us spiritually at the very least and ensure that we end up there with him and that nothing can drag away, nothing can separate us from his love and that we are safe from Satan's lies and the destruction that we are from their slavery. Have you ever heard those promises Have they gripped you? Jacob was gripped and they changed him completely. Your God was now my God. Now, does this momentous occasion and this change that Jacob has just undergone mean that now his life is all going to be a bed of roses? Uh, Was coming under God's rule and receiving the grace of God and the blessing of God mean that everything now is going to work out just right and, and everything that he touched just turn to gold. Well, you just got to read the next two chapters to know that's not right. And what a mess Jacob's life and Jacob's family life in particular turn out to be. It, it's more chaotic than days of our lives, which it's gotten pretty weird. Not that I watch it very regular, but it doesn't make any sense. And wow, and this is more chaotic than that. What happens? Well, Jacob is still on the run from his brother whom he deceived and defrauded and and he's got to flee the country. Nothing's changed there. So he decides to to go back east where granddad was from and and to seek out mum's family. And and to start with, it looks like things are going to pick up for Joseph that really are. Here's the blessings of God going to flow. Uh, I bet he couldn't believe his luck when he lays eyes on Rachel at a well, which in Genesis, it's a pretty good place to meet women. <laughs> and, and, and she's dropped dead gorgeous and, and they fall for each other instantly and they're passing within seconds of meeting. It, it, it's love at first sight. And even better, but still very weird, it turns out that her dad is Laban. Laban, mum's brother. But he seems pretty nice about cousins kissing and, uh, and the whole thing. And, and, he, and he says, Jacob, come stay with me. And he stays for a month and, and, and he lets him court his daughter. And at that point, Jacob proposes to Rachel and, but agrees to work for Laban for seven years because he's got no money for a dowry. I mean, this is, this is, you know, Eastern civilization and, and he's got no money because he's been on the run. And Laban agrees. Okay, that's fair wage for my daughter. Seven years work. I think he's thinking beauty. That's more than I thought I would get. <laughs> And we're told in verse 20 of chapter 29, get this, that that Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. I mean, Mills and Boone couldn't write that good. 
So it's all looking pretty good for Jacob until the wedding day because nice old Uncle Laban has pulled one of the longest cons in history on Jacob. Seven years he has planned for this moment because Rachel has got an older sister, Leah, who's single and She's definitely not as pretty. In fact, the only description of her is that she has weak eyes. The, <laughs> the CSB translates tender eyes, but she's got weak eyes. I think in days before glasses, I think she's going around with this squint on her face, just you know, peering at everything and so screwed up face. She's, she's not the pretty one. And, uh, and under normal circumstances, I'd say you have to be blind to mistake squinty Leah for gorgeous Rachel. But between Jacob having some Dutch courage on his wedding day and presumably the veil of the wedding dress, Jacob doesn't realise that he's marrying the wrong girl. Now, I presume that Rachel's locked away somewhere screaming blue murder. And even more surprising, I think, is that he's still so intoxicated that night of the wedding or maybe he's just not looking at her face because he doesn't notice that it's not Rachel that he's consummating the marriage with. And then comes one of the most, well, it's hilarious, but it's also uncomfortable verses in the whole Bible because we haven't been told yet that there's been this switch. Verse 25 of Genesis 29, when morning came, there was Leah. It's like a horrible sitcom moment that you, you want to laugh but you want to cry. And, but, but it's actually pretty awful, isn't it? Because what man could be so stupid as to not know? And what father could do that not just to one of his daughters but to both of his daughters? And... Rather than going and punching Laban in the face, what does Jacob do? He says, I'll tell you what, I'll work for you for another seven years for the other one. And so by the end of that, he's married not just to two different women, but but two sisters, as if that's not a recipe for disaster. And, and, And in a sense, it's a bit of Jacob seeming to get his just desserts. I mean, the the master manipulator is getting a taste of his own medicine that the deceivers deceive. But if it's not that messed up already, Laban's deception results in a whole lot more pain and misery, not just for Jacob, not just for both of his daughters, but also for two other women, Leah and Rachel's maids who moved in with them. And the story is absolutely horrible as it unfolds at the end of 29 and through 30. Because uh, Jacob doesn't love the squinty Leah at all. He pays her no attention because he's so besotted with Rachel. But Rachel turns out can't have kids. So Leah thinks, well, I'll show her and, and has four sons with Jacob to make Rachel jealous. I mean, who has children to make their husband jealous? This is ridiculous. And it does. It works. Rachel loses it and with Jacob and he demands that he must give her kids even though she can't have them. So she sends in her maid Bilhar to sleep with him as a surrogate mum. And he doesn't just have a one night stand with her, he does it again the next year and they have two sons. By this time Leah's now older, she's not intending to have more kids. 
So she thinks, right, well, I'll send in my maid, Zilpah, to get even, and not just once, but twice. They have two sons. The kids fight. Leah ends up bribing Rachel so that she can start sleeping with Jacob again because <laughs> she's been out of the bedroom for these years. And, and, and she ends up with three different pregnancies with two sons and a daughter. And finally, after years, Rachel is back in the bed and she finally gets pregnant with their son, Joseph. So it's years of misery and fighting and scandal and, and people using sex as a weapon against each other with, with 11 sons and a daughter as a result and, and another one still to come later. And all the while, Jacob doesn't even seem to bat an eyelid about sleeping with four different women who all hate each other's guts, two of whom he's not even married to. It's horrible. It's, it's messed up. It's, it's a disaster. It's, it's a miserable marriage of terrible sinners. And, and you wonder, why, why is this happening? Why would God let this happen to the man who has now come to worship him? and who he has just bestowed his magnificent promises and grace upon. Well, I think in part we're meant to see that that having God in your life and coming under his rule and blessing and grace doesn't just fix everything instantaneously. God's grace, in most cases, doesn't just circumvent things like normal cause and effect. I mean, Jacob's messed with his family and so he's on the run for his life and that doesn't go away. And there are things from your past that that are always going to affect the future. Jacob's sins with regard to his family and the lies he's told are are what brought him to this land. And and perhaps it's also a lesson in God's discipline. We, We saw a few weeks ago when we looked at Hebrews 12 that God disciplines the ones he loves and no discipline is pain is uh is nice and pleasant, it's always painful. Discipline hurts and it'll be years before there's harmony in this family. In fact, when Jacob is on his deathbed is when there will be peace. But Jacob will have become a whole different man by then, deeply committed to God, sure of the promises that were given to him, acting and making decisions about the future in faith. But there's something else more profound going on here as well. And that is that God has been involved in this whole process. Because through all these terrible things, the manipulations, the jealousies, the one night stands, the plans and the purposes of God are starting to unfold. And the promises he made start to become a reality. As awful as it is, This is really the turning point in the story of Jacob because he begins to go home to the land that was promised. We start to lose count of all his children and he's going to return with great riches set up by God to the promised land. And actually, through the story, when you look at the detail, we're even told it's God that's intervening right through at each moment. It's God who opens Leah's womb when she is unloved. It's God who opens Rachel's womb when she is the only one of the the whole messed up family without children. 
But, but even then again, it's not just God fulfilling his promise to this one man. In fact, God's promises for the whole world begin to come in here because I skipped over a part of the promise that was made to Jacob back in 28 when he met God. And, and when you look at them, they weren't just random promises plucked out of the air at all. We've, we've actually heard them all before given to someone else, to his grandfather Abraham. You look back at chapter 28 and verse 14. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you'll spread out toward the west, the east, the north and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Isn't that exactly what God promised Abraham? Through you, all nations will be blessed. What is God's real intent here? It's a whole new start for humanity. This isn't just a nice thing for Jacob. Here is hope for the whole world. Here is hope for you and me. A promise from God that that still holds two generations on, that somehow, somewhere, someday, God is going to bring blessing on a world in rebellion against him through this family. A world where people mess each other up over all sorts of terrible ways, where their family lives disintegrate and it is horrible and as they deny God and they want to rule themselves. And he is going to do it through this bizarre, broken family. God is going to call people back to him and they will come irresistibly drawn to him as he confronts them with his majesty and right to rule but also by his gracious promises to forgive and restore and cherish them again as his people. Which brings us back to the ladder, the stairway to heaven. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 1. I think it's remarkable. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus encounters a guy, and most people don't even notice it, just read straight through it. He encounters a guy called Nathaniel who ends up saying to Jesus in weird circumstances, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. That is, Nathaniel acknowledges Jesus as the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the king. And then Jesus says something strange out of the blue in verse 51 of John 1. He says to him, truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus pointing to when he says that? He's calling Nathaniel's attention as an honest Jew who knows his Bible and he's calling our attention back to this moment. When God encountered Jacob, when God made this promises, and he's saying, it's happening now. Access is open to God. God's majesty and kingship can be seen and his rule establishes. And all the promises of God's blessings are about to flow. But notice something's changed to Jacob's vision that night in the way Jesus says it. What's odd about it? What's different? Listen, I'll read it again. 
Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Where's Jesus in that picture? There's no ladder anymore. There's no stairway. Or rather, Jesus has taken the place of the ladder. Jesus is the stairway to heaven. That is to say that the angels of God, the rule of God, the joining of heaven and earth is taking place on and through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. Where can you see the, the majesty and authority and kingship of God you, in the Lord Jesus Christ? How, how can there be access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? How can you receive all the promises of God through Jesus Christ? As he alone opens the way to God, as he will go to the cross to pay for our sins, as he will bridge the gap and bring forgiveness from heaven to earth, from him to us, the gap is bridged. As he rises from the dead and he ascends into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father in majesty where he rules as the king and he is the judge who will return to judge the earth, he is the king. And as he sends his message of grace and forgiveness through his people to all nations to now come, come. We don't meet God in a specific place. We, we don't need to travel to Bethel. We meet God, or, or rather he meets us in his son, Jesus, the descendant of Jacob, the son of God, the saviour and ruler of all. In him we can have mercy. In him we can have life. Jesus is king. Jesus is good for his promises. Jesus is the bestower of all the blessings of God. It can't come another way. Have you met him yet? Let's pray. Our Father, these are amazing things you did in this man's life, Jacob, and we want to thank you that it wasn't for him alone and you weren't just teaching about what it's like to meet you to us, but you were bringing in promises that we could return, promises of blessing for the whole world, that you were going to work through all the mess of Jacob's family life. Father, we want to pray for those who are in similar situations, who are in pain and misery, where there's home life with hurt and people are manipulating and using and hurting each other. Father, please have mercy. And we pray, please, that you point them to you. But Father, we thank you that for this family, you did work your work and that you did, in the end, come as a descendant of Jacob, Jesus, the Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your rule. We thank you that we can have access. And we pray, please, that we would not go home just knowing about you, but knowing you, knowing you and being your person, not just saying, well, there is a God out there. He might be your God, but knowing you as our God, my God. Make that a reality in us today. Amen.